celebrating the coming of joy as Christ meets us in joy on the third week of Advent. And so every single week, uh, as we kind of focus on one of these attributes, we're really kind of anticipating and looking for the way that uh, Christ coming into the world has radically changed uh, the way that we experience life. And so today as we kind of uh, consider joy, I, I, I just want to ask you this question. Have you ever had a bad day? I mean, like, a really bad day. Some of you are like, pick me, I've got illustrations. Uh, so you've had a bad day, right? I'm, I'm talking about the kind of bad day where, like, you didn't sleep last night, and so when you woke up, you knew it was going to be bad. And if you have kids, you definitely had to have stepped on a Lego at some point in time during that day, and you were just ready to cash it in and be like, you know what, this one's bad, we'll go back to bed, back to bed and try again tomorrow, right? Like, that kind of bad day. You got in the car... And then on the way, someone cut you off and didn't even bother to raise their hand. And I have no idea why raising their hand makes everything better, but it really does. Someone cuts you off, and you're like waiting. You're like, I don't know if I hate you yet or not, but we're going to find out. And then if they don't raise their hand, it's this funny thing. Like, our, our heart becomes embittered. You go into work. Every relationship is just kind of a struggle. And inevitably, you're going to come in with all of this stuff kind of pressing down on your insides, and you just kind of shove it down. And somebody's going to come up to you, and they're going to ask you a question. What is that question? How are you today? How are you today? <laughs> and some days, you're having such a bad day that you just want to tell them. <laughs> but most days, we don't. Most days, we just say, fine. what? I'm fine. Fine, I'm good, I'm great, it's whatever, just leave me alone, don't talk to me. I'm going to drink some coffee, lots of coffee, and then it'll be alright, right? Like, we have this way of dealing with things, and if you really get that bright ray of sunshine, which if you're having a bad day, and there is a bright ray of sunshine in your office, you avoid them like the plague, don't you? Because they're going to come up to you and they're going to be like, oh, why are you smiling? And you're like, because I'm contemplating murder. And it's just, right? And we struggle... And so I think part of this thing that we wrestle with as we think about joy is we kind of wrestle with this thing of, of, of how do we understand joy, right, when things aren't going well? Because I think for some of us, joy is kind of, it's an easy thing when everything's going right. It's an easy thing when everything is pleasant, but how do we even begin to comprehend what joy is and how it works when it's not going well? And this is vitally important as we've gone through looking at the book of Isaiah, this prophetic book that's speaking to the reality of Israel is in chapter 55 they're talking about joy and they're talking about this sense of something good that's coming but I want to remind you that over uh, 40 chapters of this book about 40 chapters of this book are devoted to kind of anticipating the judgment that God is bringing upon a people who are wicked and so Israel, it's, it's all about Israel, and in this place, Israel has a king, Israel is ruling itself, Israel is doing pretty well, Israel has a temple, if you go in the temple, it's gilded in gold, and there's all these kind of wonderful, lovely things, and they feel pretty good about themselves, but inside, there's another story going on, inside, they're wrestling with this sin stuff, inside, their lives are kind of falling apart, inside, They've decided to pursue other ideals, other thoughts, other pursuits. They're worshiping other gods. They're not living as the people that God called them to be. And so if you've ever read the book of Isaiah before, then you know that it kind of starts in this place that is it's not a happy place. I mean, have you ever had someone come up to you and thinking they were doing you a favor just tell you, I don't think your life is headed in a good direction? You never enjoy those people. 
But this is exactly what Isaiah is doing. He says, you know what? We're headed in a bad way, guys. And if we continue in this direction, the judgment of God is coming. Why? Because God doesn't like sin. Because God doesn't like wickedness. Because God doesn't tolerate evil. And so the first half of this, really, uh, this book, a little over half, is this anticipation. He says, guess what? God is going to raise up Babylon and Assyria, these two neighboring nations, and they're going to come in and destroy you. And so this whole thing is kind of this, this bummer of a prophet. And as you can imagine, prophets of God were not always treated super well because when everybody else is like, yay, Israel's awesome, they're like, yeah, God's going to crush us all. And they're like, come on, Isaiah. <laughs> and in this place, in this frustrating place, he's been talking for 40 chapters, hey, God is going to judge this. This is serious. God takes sin seriously. They're wrestling. Finally, what happens is they are carried away. And when we come to chapter 55, which if you want to turn there, Isaiah 55, we're going to hear this word of joy that's spoken over Israel, a people who has been taken captive, a people who have had not just a bad day, but they have been utterly conquered. The temple has been pillaged and plundered, and there's this feeling like, I don't know what I have left to rejoice in. And some of us, you've been there before, you've wrestled through this. And I think our whole perception of joy is a little bit thrown off because if you've been through enough hard things, then joy becomes kind of a challenge. It's something that works itself out on your face, but is much more difficult to have in your soul. The interesting thing, though, is that biblically, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this seems to be an ideal that is always kind of enmeshed with the people of God. So much so, in fact, that this is one of the fruits of the Spirit of God. And so in Galatians 5, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And so he's talking about these things kind of go with the Spirit of God and transform the people of God. The hard part is, is that for some of us, We've started following Jesus, but you're looking at your life and you're going, hey man, I, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't find that patience is just a defining characteristic of my life. You're following Jesus, but you're like, love is still really hard. I'm following Jesus, but joy is somehow elusive. And I think there are some of us who wrestle with this notion like, did I follow Jesus right? Am I a good enough Christian? Does the Spirit of God work on me like he works on other people? And I think that's because we have a little bit of a misconception on how spirituality functions. I think that we think that if we just kind of say a prayer one time, that all of a sudden our whole character is made different, that our whole being and bearing is transformed. But I think it works a little bit differently than that. Not to say it has to be more progressive or take more time, but purely in this, that to each of these attributes, that when I look at them and I realize how they've begun to function in my life, there was something that had to be experienced before it could be acted out. Does this make sense? And so if you have never in your mind realized that God loves you, if that has never like landed in your soul that God loves you, then it becomes remarkably challenging to love other people. But when you get it, when you understand that you not deserving to be loved, that you not deserving God's gracious goodness he's given it anyway all of a sudden you kind of have this this treasure trove inside of you where you're like man i can love you better now because i see in you myself right there's there's almost no better place to have this than in kids right like when you see your kids being particularly annoying and you go oh no i do that <laughs> you ever had that feeling 
Like, oh man, this kid is in for trouble. Like seriously, my oldest son, both my sons, and I'm sure my daughter will grow into it as well. It seems to be a family trait. They have a big mouth and they love their little comebacks. And it's really funny because I'm not training them in the right way. And I feel like this is one of the ways that as a father, I probably need to grow. Because when one of my sons burns the other son, they're like, oh, burn, and they get him. I'm like, come on, was that really that creative? You can do better. <laughs> and you probably shouldn't do this as a godly father, but I'm like critiquing their creativity instead of telling them be nice. I'm like, come on, like, it's so like everybody can do that, you know, be creative with it. And so as I watch them, I'm like, that is going to be troublesome in their life. I know it because it was troublesome in mine. And I started to think, like, okay, how can I help them the way I, I might have liked it if someone helped me? Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. There's something that when you experience it, you can live it out. And I think some of us, the reason why we're having trouble emulating this joy in our life is because we've never really felt this, this reason to have joy. We've never felt this deep abiding joy about us. And so I think we need to wrestle with what joy is. And some people have kind of said joy is like happiness, except joy is unconditional. I've heard that definition before. And I think it's sort of true, but I think joy is conditional on having been experienced. In other words, I think that joy can trump whatever circumstances you're facing, but if you've never had a reason to feel excited, then I think joy is a tough thing to kind of manufacture. In other words, I remember uh, the day uh, before I married Allison, there was all this anticipation, and I stayed, um, my in-laws, had kind of, uh, they were building this, this, this thing. It wasn't even wholly completed. There certainly were no beds inside it. And I stayed in with all my groomsmen, and there were like nine guys, okay? It wasn't just my groomsmen. And we slept on the floor the day before I got married, and it was cold. And I was thinking, as I'm sleeping on the hard floor, and it's cold, I'm not complaining. I'm like, I'm getting married tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like, there was this joy inside me that trumped, the trouble that I faced. And if that joy is in you, it comes out over the other things. But the problem is some of us haven't found out the reason to have joy. And so I want to walk you through this theological concept. Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of the Bi of Biblical Theology defines joy as basically happiness over an unanticipated or present good. In the Old Testament, joy covers a wide range of human experiences from sexual love or intimacy to marriage the birth of children. Some of you who have had kids, you remember looking at your kid for the first time. Wasn't that moment like miraculous? Didn't it feel like time kind of stopped for a minute and you're like, I'm in a sacred moment. Like this moment is one of those moments that I'm always going to remember. And I feel that way. My first son, I remember when he was born and I first looked at him and I looked at this kid and I thought to myself, he looks like a little old man. And I will never forget that. I will never forget it. Those were literally the first thoughts that came out of my mind, and it stuck there forever because that moment was sacred. And I was like, this is the most incredible moment. And that feeling, that sensation, that joy, the birth of children, Psalm 113, 9, the gathering of the harvest, military victory. In other words, you kind of you fight these battles, and you're uncertain of who will win. And when you succeed, that's joy. If you've ever seen, like, if you've ever been to a, a Bears football game and you've seen two, like, middle-aged men who are largely out of shape and it's 20 degrees below zero and they're not wearing shirts and they have stuff written on their bellies that jiggles, right? 
When the Bears score a touchdown and those two men hug ferociously, that is joy. It is this, this exuberance that pours out of you. It says on the spiritual level, it refers to the extreme happiness with which the believer contemplates salvation and the bliss of the afterlife. In other words, our source of joy is contingent upon the reality that we understand in the coming of Christ that we have experienced salvation. That the hope of Christ is ultimately that we can be forgiven of our sins and that everything that is wicked and wrong in this world will be taken care of and dealt with. Sin will be no more. Evil will be obliterated. Death will be done away with. That there will be no more weeping, no more sorrow, no more tears. There's going to be no more battle, no more of that internal struggle for those of you who have wrestled in the darkness of depression and you've wondered, like, how do I even face this? That battle's gone. For those of you who have wandered in the place where you felt neglected or unloved and it's hard just to face other people and wonder, will I ever feel like kind of full if you felt that? To not feel inside yourself that way. If you have wrestled and you have battled and you've asked the question more times than you care to admit, am I good enough? If you've compared yourself to everything else and you've kind of filtered this out like I have in a competitive nature that kind of says, if I do well, then I matter. To not be twisted in your thinking, but to understand something that is going to be fully righted. And when I imagine that eternity, when I imagine heaven in that way, when I imagine the dysfunction of this world kind of falling off me and the way that I think and the way that I experience and the perfection of love and the closeness with God, I think about that place, there's something that begins to well up inside of me, this kind of hope that leads me to something that is far off and yet coming near, and that is the source of joy. This hope in our salvation, this certainty in the goodness of God is what leads us to the place of rejoicing, even in the midst of hardship and trouble. And so I want to take you to Isaiah 55. I told you to put your finger there. You can go there now. Isaiah 55. <laughs> We're finding this just a couple of chapters after what we did last week. They are in exile. They are struggling. They have lost their view of what it is to be Israel. They have understood that their land has been cut down. It feels like a desert where, where thorns have been planted and nothing good will ever grow. They have lost sight of their vision of God's faithfulness. And they've stopped believing that God can be good to them. Some of you, you've wrestled in similar places. And you stopped asking the question, is it going to get better? And you've just accepted the answer, no, it won't. I'll always be incomplete. I'll always be broken. This messiness will always surround me. These fears, these worries, this guilt, this shame, it will always be mine. And in this place, God begins to speak through the prophet Isaiah into Israel, the people being redeemed. And he says this, he says, come. The invitation is come, draw near. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the water. Those of you who have deep longing, those of you who are looking to be satisfied, those of you who have felt this thing inside of you that is hungered for something perhaps you could not fully explain, the language of God is come. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Now here's the interesting picture. Because to these people who've been carried away in exile, they're slaves now. They have no riches. They have no money. Imagine that they broke out. Imagine that they escaped. And they walked for days through the wilderness. Nothing to drink, nothing to eat. 
and they made their way into a local market, and people are saying, hey, we've got food, and we've got something to drink, and they say, great, I'd love something, and they say, how much for this, and they say, a bottle of water, $1.25, and they go, great, I would, but I don't have any money. You say, I'm hungry, what about something to eat, and they say, hey, we got a great deal, right, the McRib is back on sale, $7.99, you know, whatever. <laughs> they're like, I don't have any money, there's nothing I can do, I can't purchase this. So it's almost as though to say there's something good, but I just can't get to it. And he's speaking to these people, this enslaved people, who think even if there was goodness, I couldn't get to it. And he says, come, you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. There's this promise of God to those who have been estranged, to those who feel like they have no ability to make back and resolve what they've taken, if you've ever stolen something and lost it, you can't repay what was taken, but you wonder, can relationship be restored? This is exactly what God is saying. Mm -hmm. If you've ever done something against God and you thought, I can't ever make it up, I can't get back the years that were lost, he's saying, it's okay, come. And then he begins to change the narrative a little bit, and he says, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, he says it twice, listen to me. And eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest fare. Literally what's going on here is that he's saying that there are times in our life where we hunger for something, and what we consume is not good for us. Okay? It's like a kid who says, I'm hungry. I'll know. I know. I'll buy three bags of Sour Patch Kids. And then he eats those, hoping, now I won't be hungry. And he said, feels like, now I'm going to throw up. There are some things that we feel like should be good, and we purchase them, right? And they are not valuable. I don't know if any of you have seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine before, the TV show. Yeah. Two of you, great. Uh, so ride with me. There's a guy, it's about a bunch of cops, he's a detective, and he famously has no money. Uh, he is very poor, his car is a piece of junk, and his uncle dies, and his uncle was really wealthy. And so he starts asking people in his precinct, he says, hey, I just come into a bunch of money, I've got this huge inheritance, you name it, you get it, what do you want? And somebody says, I want a motorcycle. He says, done, what do you want? I want a sports car, done. And he's just going over like he's gonna come into all this money, and he opens it up, this kind of package, and he pulls it out, and it shows a stock certificate, and it says, one million shares of stock in Blockbuster. <laughs> And he goes, oh man, is that bad? Is that bad? So obviously it's worth nothing. If there are any of you who have purchased stock in Blockbuster thinking it would pay out, I apologize. That money is gone. It's gone. You're never getting it back. It's gone. There's some things in our life, man, that we thought this is going to be great. It's going to be huge. It's going to be big. And it blows up in our face. And listen, some of us, it's where we put our money. Some of us, it's where we put our time and our energy. Some of us, we pursued relationships and they just didn't work out. We pursued different things and it just blew up in our face. For some of us in this room, if we can just be honest with our addictive nature and tendency, we have pursued all sorts of things, right? Your drug of choice. And you said, this will fix things. And for a while, it gave us something like joy, a euphoria that lasted for a little bit and then it dropped us on our face. And so we're looking, where is the joy that lasts? And to the believer, we have been extended this source of joy that is never ending and never failing in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet still we're left here having to choose it for ourselves. Henry Nouwen says it this way, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy. 
and keep choosing it every single day. And Isaiah, he continues in verse 3, he says, Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised David. Again, we're remembering, I've showed this image the last three weeks because it seems to be important to Isaiah. He keeps bringing it back that imagine Israel as this place with the trees of Lebanon and they're beautiful and glorious and everything is cut down. And so we're left with the stump image. We're left with this idea that Israel is a tree that has been cut down and burned and everything is dead and the promises are gone. And yet something rises up out of this, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, from the line of David. And this is the Messiah that is promised, the person of Jesus. That which is dead is alive again. So I want you to hear this through the ears of Israel, who is in exile, enslaved. Their life is not working out the way they thought it would. The goodness is gone. The, the people that they thought they would be, they are not. And yet God is saying, Faithful love promised to David will be restored in you. And so there's this incredible promise of love. He says, see, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. In other words, he's saying to the people who have no king, he's saying to the people who are not a people, a people who are enslaved, he's saying to the people whose whole lives have worked out poorly, worked out wrong, he says, no, 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 you will be restored, and in fact, you'll be such a great nation that people from all over the earth will be drawn to you and blessed by you. This is the messianic promise of the fulfillment of the line of David and the person of Jesus Christ. And when we understand this, when we understand God's covenant, faithful love to a people who have blown it, guys, I can't help but see myself in Israel as the nation who has had a high calling but keeps falling down and keeps failing. And sometimes we wonder, would God still love me? And he's reinforcing that and saying, my love is faithful. In fact, God doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us because he is loving. He is this God that from him emanates this incredible love. Mother Teresa rightly notes, where there is love, there is joy. There is joy that flows out of us when we recognize God's immense love for us. That when we understand our identity is built and shaped up in his love, there is something inside of it that should start to raise the exuberance inside our bones. And we start to realize, though life is hard, God's goodness is here. And it changes the way I am. In Isaiah 55, 6 through 7, there's kind of the so what moment. Okay, fine, we're in exile. We were wicked and God judged us and punished us. What was his purpose? What was his point? It was to the transformation of Israel. And some of you, you've gone through the hard places of life and you've made the wrong decisions. I know I have. And you looked at your life and you wondered, man, when I did wrong, bad seemed to happen to me quite a bit. Where is the kindness of God? We're actually shown the kindness of God and his justice. We don't see it that way, but man, let me tell you, some of the best things that ever happened to me were the times I got caught. They were the times when I did wrong and I had to face justice and change. Because if you don't do it, right, if that doesn't happen, if you don't get caught, if you don't change, you continue on in this path of destruction and it will destroy you. And so God says, hey, listen, here's what I want. Here's what I'm looking for. 
you wicked ones, you sinners, you people like Andrew. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Let me say mercy. Mercy. There's this beautiful gift, this thing that we experience. The, the love of God comes in and it kind of grabs hold of us and it says, I still care for you. I still love you. You've blown it, but that's okay. You've blown it, but I'm still here. And for those of us who don't know how to do this naturally, who are really good at holding grudges, you know who you are. We find this mercy when we approach our children, don't we? There's something beautiful in the heart of a parent that I think mirrors the heart of God. I got to see it from my parents. Not only pointed towards me in a couple of different occasions, but also for those of you who kind of know my story and know the situation that I grew up in. Um, I grew up with a drug addict in the house. My older brother uh, was addicted to drugs since the time he was about 13 years old. I grew up in a place where we were being stolen from, where my parents started to put locks on their doors. I grew up in a place where uh, it was not an infrequent thing for me to get beat up or have my life threatened. Though, as I said before, I did have a pretty big mouth, so I don't know that that's 100% on Chris. And in this place, I watched my parents deal with their son whom they loved. And I watched in the place where he violated trust. I watched in the place where he was even kicked out of the house a couple of times. But you know what I never saw? Not once, not ever. I never saw my parents give up. I never saw my parents say, that's too far, we're done, go away, don't come back, you're not part of the family anymore. And I bet even if the words had been spoken, they would have gone back because that's just what parents do. And for some of us, we wrestle with God like this because we wonder, we're like, man, I have blown it with God so many times. I have made the wrong choice so many times. I have lived in evil so many times. God has given me countless second chances and I've taken them and squandered them and ruined them. Certainly God could not want me now. And to that I would say, look at Israel. The people who were called to be his chosen people, called by his name. The people who were meant to be an example to the world of who God was, and they failed over and over and over. And even carried away in exile, living under the just judgment of God. The message comes and says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways. Change, be different. And the unrighteous, their thoughts, don't think down the same paths. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. This is who our God is. And then he backs it up by saying, you don't even get it. Like, sometimes we put God in this box, and we think, like, God is like this. And we want to put these limitations on who he is and how he works, and we say, you know, God wouldn't do this, and God wouldn't do that, and God should be like this or should be like that. God, if you were really good, if you were really loving, it would look more like this. God, if you were a good God, do it my way. And we misunderstand the nature of God. And so we have God's voice coming in in Isaiah 55. In verse 8, he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. So let's just have a little perspective here, just, just to get what he's talking about. Because I think we sort of get it. We're like, oh yeah, heavens, sure, sure, sure. Well, just real quick, heavens. This is the Milky Way galaxy. There is an arrow pointing to a speck. That speck is our planet. 
Go ahead and wave, see if anything happens. <laughs> I can't identify myself in that. Let's get a little closer. That is Earth. Yeah. Earth has a moon around it. It's teeny tiny. Let's get a little closer. That's Earth from the moon. This tiny little planet, 8 billion people. It's not like God is far away. It's just saying God's perspective is big. His understanding is deep. His knowledge is total. Past, present, future, all things exist before him. There is no uncertainty in the mind of God. When he speaks of this and says, hey, my ways are different than your ways, like this, the heavens compared to the earth, it's a big difference. It's not a little difference. It's infinitely different. I mean, how many of us, if we could see our path laid out before us, would have made different decisions? Are there any of you that if you could have chosen just one moment in your life and make a different decision, wouldn't take advantage of it? I remember five years ago, I was out driving. It was raining. I went away someplace that I didn't normally go. I went a different way. And I ended up behind someone who stopped inexplicably. In other words, for no reason apparent to me, slammed on their brakes. I slammed on my brakes. And I skidded on the wet pavement and at 10 miles an hour, I thought maybe I'll slow down in time. I did not. 10 miles an hour, my car struck the back of theirs. And how many of you know that if you hit someone at 10 miles an hour with your car, it still does plenty of damage? Yeah. 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 And so my headlight was shoved in, my bumper was messed up, my hood was crumpled, and I'm like, come on. And for the next couple weeks, I couldn't help but think, if only I had known I'd have given them more space. I'd have driven in the other lane. I'd have taken a different way. I would have stayed at home. There's so many things that we just think, if only I had known, if only I could see what was coming, I would have made a different choice. Can I tell you, God doesn't have that problem. His perspective is infinite. His wisdom is final. And so we look at God sometimes, and we're like, why are you doing what you're doing? And he says, listen, my thoughts, my ways, they're not like yours. There's a bigger picture going on in my head than what you see. Trust me. And he begins to declare something over them. And I want you to understand the identity of Israel is so locked in with their land. Right? That the picture up to this point is trees cut down, burned, the land scorched, a desert area with nothing growing. And he begins to declare this. And it's going to seem weird to us who aren't farmers and weird to us who don't live off the land and have jobs and work with money and and different sorts of things, but to them, I just want you to hear this for a minute, that when God begins to speak of his high ways and his different thoughts and his differentness, he's speaking to a people who have been carried off their land, scorched behind them. He says this, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish that which I desire and achieve the purpose for which I send it. And so he's giving them this narrative of regrowth, of restoration, of a land that's thriving again. And he says, this is what happens in the life of a person when my word moves forward. This is what brings us hope. When we come before the word of God like this and we hear it pushing on us, there is this invitation to come change. And he gives this weird analogy, and if we can just embrace it in its weirdness, like, let's not get overly churchy. Can we just accept that sometimes, like, poetry and, and biblical literature, it gives us funny images. Like, let's just grab onto that. 
Because in this last verse here, he says, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. So first off, we've all seen the movie. I understand sometimes a nun goes to a little family without a mom and she sings and she talks to us about the hills being alive with the sound of music. Maybe that's where your head went. Fine, fine. When he says, man, the hills are alive with song. Like, that should make you scratch your head a little because I've been outside plenty. I've been on hills and mountains and not once did I ever hear a hill singing. <laughs> and then he says, by the way, the trees will clap their hands. Have you ever seen a tree with hands? This is weird imagery, but all of a sudden he's painting a picture in a land that is barren and dead. Like if you were to personify the land of Israel after it has been destroyed by Babylon, the language you would come up with is not singing, but mourning wails. The imagery of clapping your hands is one of celebration. The trees are clapping. That's what you can't do if you're completely cut down. All of a sudden, he's expressing trees that are big enough to extend branches and sway and rejoice and proclaim the goodness of God. And just to show you the picture that he's talking about, because we get lost in the juniper trees. He begins to talk to them and he says, hey, this is what it's going to be like instead of the thorn bush, right? Go back to the thorn bush. This thorn bush, I typed in thorn bush in Israel. This is what they do. It's something that speaks of, of dead, dying, decay. Like as they're thinking about their homeland, they're thinking of everything left in ruins. All that is left is thorn bushes. And he says, instead of the thorn bush, will grow the juniper, this incredible tree. This big, beautiful, lush, green tree going out in the middle of the desert, providing shade and health and strength. You see the imagery that he's evoking. What you see and feel is brokenness, but what will be restored is life. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This is a myrtlewood tree right next to the briars. So we've got the briars on the left-hand side in the next picture, if you can show that. We've got the briars. And if you've ever gone into a briar patch and like been stabbed by a thorn, they are annoying. Okay, They will rip at your clothes, they'll tear at your skin, and if you've ever been a kid, this has been on your top ten like greatest nemesis list if you had to play outside. The thorn bushes. And he says, but that's not all that will be there. The myrtle will grow. These large, luscious trees, again expressing life, that which was torn down will be rebuilt. And he says, this will be for the Lord's renown. In other words, it brings God glory to do good things to those who follow him. It brings God glory to be able to engage in such a way that when your life is transformed positively, his name is exalted. This is what he's doing it for. For the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. In other words, God's primary mission, because he is a God of love, and restoration and salvation is knit together with redeeming human beings, the people he has made in his image, which he loves. 
This is a story that should lead us to joy in the midst of suffering. It's a picture that's being cast of something that's torn apart, being rebuilt and renewed. And so I want to say this today. If this is your life, if your picture, your vision, your image for who and what you are is the story that has come to destruction and you wonder, will it ever be good again? I want you to know that the promise of God is good. Some of you, you've lived enough life to know that there are pains that you've carried with you. Some of you have burdens and scars, things that weigh on your soul from your childhood that you can't seem to get past. And you wonder, will it always hurt? For me personally, I remember when I, I played baseball in high school and I had the opportunity right after I graduated to play with Western Michigan University's uh, summer team. And I got to play at a caliber I never played before. And I started dreaming, maybe I'll be a famous baseball player. Maybe I'll be a professional athlete. And I went diving on a ball, and I very nearly caught it. I landed on my shoulder, and I tore two ligaments in my shoulder. For 10 days, my arm would not move. And every day since I was 18 years old to where I am now at 37, I can feel some pain in my shoulder. I feel it when I sleep and when I move and when I act. But much like many of you, I'm able to slough it off and say, that's just part of growing older. Sometimes you have aches and pains. Some of you have pain in your feet. Some of you have pain in your back. Some of you have pain in your teeth. And you just go, that's just what it is to grow old. You kind of realize, you know what? I, I, I can move on. Look, my arm works. I still wrestle with my kids. I still function, whatever. But you kind of think, as I grew older, this is just... This is the trajectory. It's more pain, more hardship, more suffering, less mobility, less agility, less ability to do what I thought I was supposed to do. And we wrestle with this stuff because it seems like as life goes on, it only gets harder. That's being immediately combated with the narrative of Jesus Christ who is redeeming and restoring. And that which is broken, not just physically, but mentally, spiritually, the wounds you carry in your soul. It can be restored. The eternal life that we're hoping for in Jesus, this hope, this reason of salvation, is to set wrong all, or to set right all that has gone wrong in the wickedness and evil of man. No more fear, no more worry, no more shame, no more anger, no more hate, no more bitterness, no more pain, no more crying, no more tears. Some of you, you're done with tears. You Hide your eyes out. And the source of our joy is, is found here in the person of Jesus. And so I want to ask you, do you have joy? Is it yours? Is it what flows out of you? And some of you, as I'm talking, you're like, well, man, I thought this was a rough season, but it's not like Jewish exile in the Babylon rough. And so you, you kind of look at the perspective and you shove it down and you say, you know, I may not have joy, but life's not that bad. Let's keep moving on. I want you to know joy is for you. It is a fruit of the Spirit. That when you understand rightly the hope that you have in Christ and the love that God has poured out on you, joy should bubble up. People should look at you as you go through the hard things of life and say, what is it that is different about you? What's kept you smiling in the places where life gets hard and loss is huge? And you go, man, it's big, it's hard, it's tough, but I still have joy. And people go, why? You should have this answer. Because in my brokenness, Jesus loved me. This is our story. 
This is the source of our joy. This is what doesn't run out. So what have you built that joy upon? Something that can be broken or something that never fails? Because some of us, you know, we've chased girls and guys, relationships, all this stuff, and we thought, that'll make me happy. And it didn't. So you got married, and you said, that'll make me happy. And it didn't. You said, I'll have kids, and that'll make me happy. Some parts of it were great. A lot of parts of it were really hard. We keep looking, man. We keep trying to, to fill up the things inside of our broken lives. And all of us carry this brokenness with us. And we just say, this will make it better. But listen, it was intended. It was purposed for you to know God. He has this for you. And he's calling to you. He is the hope that never fails. Because if you put your hope in your children, man, things can go wrong there. And some people who are estranged from their kids, some people have experienced loss. If you put your hope in your spouse, man, you could fight sometimes for hours, sometimes for days. You could lose that person. They could die. And we wrestle and we struggle and we just say, God, where are you in those places? Because we built up our joy on something that is temporal instead of on the love of Jesus. So what I want you to hear today is this. The joy of the Lord can be yours in Christ. So I want to ask you to stand so heavenly father god we pray desiring this thing that you have for us uh, we don't pray and ask kind of uh, just to get whatever we want but god if this is you if joy is part of who you are if it is a fruit of the spirit if walking with you produces this and it's not here and i think it's just and good and right to pray for it so we ask god will you cover us in joy Will you speak joy over us into our families, into places of darkness and hopelessness and hurt? Will you bring joy into this season and into this space as we anticipate the coming of Christ into the world again? God, seeing the world in suffering and darkness, he entered in. And this gives us purpose to celebrate. It gives us the ability to rejoice. Lord, meet us here. I pray for the person in this place who has never known you. I pray that today would be a turning point, that today would be the space to say, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, come be the king, the Lord of my life. For the person who's lost in darkness, feeling like the Jew in exile in Babylon, the person whose life will never be good again, I pray that you would speak your purpose over them, your loving kindness. I pray that you would restore to them the hope of life lived in your goodness. We trust you for that because you are faithful even when we are not. So we love you, Jesus.